coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. Windows exploits for sale at a great price. How the internet actually works. Yes, seriously. And it's awesome. Plus, we solve some of your problems, have a great roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 269 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on June 2nd, 2016. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. Oh, our live stream? That's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. It's pretty awesome. The headphones I'm wearing? Yeah. They're not so awesome, but my name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Hello, sir. I like that tech snap swag. I like it, Alan. You're wearing that tech snap swag. Whoa, I, for those of you listening, there are people who maybe have never even watched this show, right? In fact, probably a, a large percentage of people have never even watched this show. Uh, for a while now, Alan has had a Tetris lamp behind him. It has never really... I've never seen this shape before. It's really kind of going wide. It's sort of going yeah. horizontal. <laughs> yeah. You know, after he gets older, it's such a sag. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, speaking of things that start to sag, the Windows code base, uh, it could be yours for $90,000. That's where our first story starts. <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay, tell me about it. Right. So there's a zero day exploit for Windows. Right? You're not getting yeah, the source yeah, yeah. code of Windows. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Right. I guess yeah. you can get for I meant, an amount of money from Microsoft. What I was but it requires a non disclosure. What I was very sloppily saying is you could own Windows. You know, you could you yeah. could you could own. Yeah. Okay. But it's you, bad. You would it's no good. It, not own it. But I anyway. I know. I know. <clears throat> yes. So if you have access to a Windows computer and would like to have administrator access or even better system access, you can buy that. <laughs> Yes. So there's a new zero-day exploit for sale for Windows, and the uh, author wants ninety thousand U.S. dollars. Hmm. Not Bitcoin. Nope. Uh. Well, I don't know if they converted that from Bitcoin oh, okay. to dollars. Okay. Okay. All well, the headlines I've seen have the equivalent been of ninety thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, a hacker going by the name Buggy Corp uh, is selling a zero-day vulnerability affecting all versions of Windows. So that's two thousand, two thousand and three. XP, wow. uh, 2008, wow. 2008 R2, Vista 7. No. Oh, man. 2012, 2016. This everything. is what I love. I love I love a good vulnerability that affects all the different releases. That's Because well, uh, really that means that the bug's probably been in the code since Windows 2000. Yeah. Or sooner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't, I don't think anybody bothers to check if it was there in like NT3.51. Yeah. 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 Yes. Uh, so it affects all versions of Windows and allows an attacker to elevate privileges uh, for software processes to the highest level available in Windows, known as system. Uh, that actually seems kind of like a low price. The vulnerability, you know, might not quite be the game over scenario you might expect because of that. Uh, in this particular case, because it's a local privilege escalation, it means you already have to have access to somebody's machine before uh. you can use it to change from being a user to being system, right? Honestly, I thought it seemed like a low price. I did think so. That makes right. sense, uh, though. Yeah, because you'd have to already have got access to the system before you could use it, Yeah, that explains why it's only $90,000, because, you know, you'd expect this to have a huge price tag so that you could sell it to the FBI so they could use it against people right. for right. stuff. Now, if you <laughs> or, or use it for one case where they end up not 
getting anything useful. Now you could flip it like a like a used house, right? You could you could buy this and then bundle it with something that does get you remote access, and then uses this and then sell that for yeah, a million. You probably could do that. <laughs> uh, in particular, the author claims that they will sell this only to one person, keeping that value high, right? You know this, uh, and it will include the source code and a working demo of how to do it. Honestly, if I was Microsoft, I would just buy it. Uh, well, that we, that's some a question somebody put to Microsoft, actually. Uh, okay. Uh, so there's two videos of the exploit in action uh, up on YouTube. The first one shows the exploit working against a fully patched uh, Windows 10. So Windows 10 with, like, the May security update already done. Wow. Uh, and uh, it still works there. And then the second one, interestingly, shows it bypassing all of the EMET features and mitigations. So that's the... Uh, enhanced mitigation experience toolkit that is supposed to lock down your Windows machine and make it secure. Yeah. Uh, well, this gets around all of that too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. You know it's, those just like uh, that uh, address uh, space randomization, like we talked about. Oh uh, yeah, this just gets around that. ASLR just gets around that. Yeah, just fine. No, no big deal. <laughs> I'm watching the videos you talk about this a little bit right now, and it's yeah, it's clearly a Windows 10 machine that they're working on, um, yeah. and now they've gotten now that now they're in the command line. So. Right, but it, mostly it's showing that it works against fully patched Windows 10. Yeah. Uh, you know, how much would a cyber criminal or nation state or organized crime group pay for blueprints on how to exploit a serious, currently undocumented, unpatched vulnerability in all versions of Microsoft Windows? Oh, well, that price uh, probably depends on the power of the exploit and what the market will bear at the time. Uh, you know, the reason for the price is so low, likely, is this type of flaw is always going to be used in tandem with another vulnerability to successfully deliver and run the attacker's malicious code, right? Mm. In order to uh, escalate privilege on the machine, you have to be on the machine. So you're going to need some other type of malware or something to get onto their machine first, right? This isn't one you can just exploit remotely against an unsuspecting person. Uh, but, you know, there's lots of malware that does exactly that, right? There's lots of you know malware droppers or some things like the Angular exploit mm -hmm. uh, kit that are specifically designed to be able to get on your machine and then download the latest malware to use against you. Right. Yep. Uh, nice little combo pack there. Yep. Uh, the seller claims his exploit works on every version of Windows from 2000 to the latest Windows 10. Uh, Jeff Jones, who's the cybersecurity strategist for, uh, with Microsoft, said the company was aware of the exploit sales thread, but stressed that the claims were still actually unverified. Uh -huh. uh, asked whether Microsoft would ever consider buying uh, or paying for information about zero-day vulnerabilities, uh -huh. Jones pointed to the company's bug bounty program that rewards security researchers for reporting vulnerabilities. Hmm. According to Microsoft, they've already paid out uh, half a million dollars in bounties. Uh, Microsoft says uh, does pay for bugs and maybe not... Uh, Maybe not quite as much as the black market does for some of them, but uh, Microsoft heavily restricts the type of vulnerabilities that qualify for bug bounties. Uh, but a bug like the one for sale for $90,000 would qualify for a substantial bounty reward. Uh, last summer, Microsoft raised its uh, reward for information about a vulner uh, vulnerability that can lead to a bypass of EMET from uh, $50,000 to $100,000. So while the local privilege escalation that's actually at the core of that of what he's selling mm -hmm. wouldn't be worth ninety thousand uh, dollars in the Microsoft bug bounty program. The bypass for EMET that's part of it could be worth up to a hundred thousand dollars from Microsoft alone. Plus, you probably get something for the local privilege escalation as well. So maybe this guy'd actually have been better off selling it to Microsoft. So playing the other side of this, uh, I mean, Microsoft can have their public statements about having a bug bounty program and how much they've paid out, but it seems like. $90,000 for them when you look at the size of the Windows install base, especially because it spans so many versions. Um, 
and some of those people are from are like enterprise customers paying top dollar to still have support. It seems mm-hmm. like ninety thousand dollars for them would be a steal, especially if they just like talk to them. Hey, uh, Frank, I want you to just contact this guy uh, and just take care of this and buy this, and um, we'll write you a check. Maybe. Um, yeah. Uh, the other interesting thing is. I wonder if the reason why their payouts are so low is because most of the vulnerabilities that are reported to Microsoft are done by other companies that maybe mm. don't qualify for the bug bounty. Mm. I don't know how the bug bounties work if you're, say, a research company that just sits there researching bugs like all the Like Google's time. Project Zero and whatever. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know if that actually qualifies for the bug bounty. I, I don't bet know Microsoft would love writing people. Google a check. I bet they would just love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I've seen ones like that. I think it was Google or Microsoft, one of the two. Uh, and um, lost my train of thought. Sorry. Google was about? probably about oh, right. uh, uh, bug bounty yes, programs. Uh, a, free, a, f- uh, a FreeBSD developer mm-hmm. got a bug bounty from Google, oh. and uh, instead of getting paid it and having to deal with the tax implications of getting paid from the U.S. when they're in Europe, uh-huh. uh, Google doubled it if he donated it to the FreeBSD Foundation instead. Class act. Yeah. So if you donate it to a nonprofit, some of the bug bounty programs will double the amount they pay you, huh. which is actually a cool idea that is really cool and you know in certain cases if the place you're donating to is means it's a tax deductible or whatever it might actually have a benefit to google to mm. to, mm-hmm. to double your yeah your, yeah uh, really payout. yeah really no kidding that's that's yeah. well yeah so there's definitely benefit for them too that's that's yeah. a very good point uh now if you uh look at the krebs article there's a chart about <clears throat> two-thirds of the way down oh, or so. yeah mm-hmm. uh, the zerodium mm-hmm. one looks kind of like the yep yeah Looks like the periodic table of elements kind of. Yeah, uh, so this is Zerodium, which is one of those evil companies that buys these exploits and then sells them to governments and so on for inflated prices. Uh, they will pay up to $30,000 for a uh, local privilege exploit. Well, so that gives you an idea of what this is normally worth. Yeah, it does, uh, doesn't it? Gives you at least even a, on this, on, yeah. this is on the gray market. I don't know. Do they have – I don't really see uh, EMET bypass on their list of things. But ASLR bypasses are worth up to $40,000. Hmm. Seems like it would be about the same. Yeah, uh, and so if you combine those two, you might actually be able to get away with, uh, you know, that's seventy thousand guaranteed from a company rather than the black market. But uh, there's uh, again uh, addressing Microsoft's thing. We're saying, well, it's not actually verified that it's a problem yet. Um, it's yeah. you know, Krebs goes into the interesting bit that you know. The person selling this is doing it through the escrow program that's part of the black market site, and uh, that's you know a reputation-based thing. So this guy already has a reputation, and he's willing to give the money or give the exploit to the administrator right. of the forum, who will then take the money yeah. from the person who buys it, yeah. keep a small amount, and then pass and, and make sure that both sides that, end up happy. I mean, that's maybe the biggest reason not to go to a commercial company or to a le- legitimate avenue, right? Is because you want to establish a certain amount of credibility in this. Yeah, maybe instead of just getting $90,000, you want that plus the the street cred, right? Yeah, yeah. Especially if you uh, truly deliver on that, no one else gets access to it. So then you become known for someone who's dealing with really exclusive stuff. And this, yeah. a vulnerability that spans all versions, including currently patched Windows, 10's and, Windows 10 and bypasses the uh, mitigation tool, that's that's a good rep. That's a <laughs> that catch people's attentions when you come out in the future with something else, right? Yeah. So in particular, the biggest factor in the actual value of an exploit to the buyer is its longevity. How long before Microsoft figures out what this issue is and patches it? And exclusivity is is probably right. a big part yeah. of keeping if, it. If you're the only brother person that actually knows what this vulnerability is yeah. and you have it to use, and 
if you use it sparingly so that it doesn't get in the hands of antivirus vendors and other people, mm -hmm. then it you could use it for quite a while and get quite a bit of value out of it. Uh, you so, know, this, you is, know, this again, is basically the reason why the NSA doesn't want to give up their zero days that they find because it's like if we only use them against like one person at a time, the chances of uh, it getting found out and fixed are pretty low and we can, you know, ride this this boat for a while. Yeah, maybe I'm watching too much uh, Mr. Robot, but to me it just seems like it would be a brilliant move by Microsoft to buy this thing up and then just somehow expose this guy or, you know... Essentially, if they let this happen, they are going to not only let a vulnerability like this out in the wild, but they will also be giving credibility to somebody who's obviously targeting their platform and, and doing it in a very public way. You know what yeah, I mean? It's not like it's the first Windows Zero day, right? Yeah, true. Very true. Yeah. yeah. But it's different when there's this marketplace with yeah. seller ratings and credibility and all. I mean, that's, that's starting to get... I mean, that's not totally new. Right. It was just done in different forms in the past, so... Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the value is, you know, or the longevity of a flaw like this is directly proportional to how widely the exploit is used. Yeah. If the people that grab it, you know, throw it in an exploit kit and just try to get as many people as they can right away, uh, then relatively quickly the AV vendors will get a hold of copies of it, figure out what the problem is, forward that to Microsoft, there'll be a patch. And although, you know, Patch Tuesday for June is, is probably already locked down, right? The fixes that are going to be in that are already <laughs> yeah, finished, yeah. polished, and... Yeah. And we'll ship because that's like next week, right? Yeah. Is it the second Tuesday? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, yeah. Uh, next week will only be the first Tuesday. So maybe there's enough time to get a fix in for this. It's hard to say. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah, maybe. I doubt it, though. I doubt that. I... Yes. Uh, but yeah, and then uh, there's some additional links in here to cover stuff. Yeah, more stuff in the show notes. Find that over at the site. Just look for episode 269, the site being jupiterbroadcasting.com. Let me take a moment and tell you about DigitalOcean for a sponsor right here today on the TechSnap program. DigitalOcean.com is where you go, and our promo code is SNAPOcean. Use SNAPOcean, and guess what? This is pretty sweet. You get a $10 credit. Now, the reason why that's so dang sweet, because they only cost at the, at the, base, at the base rig, $5. $5 a month for the base rig. That's that's great because it's it's $5 that gets you really really enterprise grade infrastructure. They have a in fact, speaking of their infrastructure, they have a brand new data center. They have data centers all over the world. Uh, in, in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, uh, Toronto, Germany, and they just today, or actually not today, but just today as I mean our first time we've, since like, we've been recording. Well, yesterday like, late yesterday, yeah. so today. <laughs> Yeah, they announced uh, their brand new BLR1 data center. Look at that sucker. That's cool. Uh, DigitalOcean opens up a data center in India, in Bangalore. Yeah, so that, that gives them, yeah, like you said, there's uh, San Francisco, Toronto, New York, London, Amsterdam, Germany, uh, Bangalore, India, and uh, Singapore for Asia. Yeah. That is, and it's, it's, it's the same interface, the same pricing everywhere you go, the same API. Uh, the the UI is really really fantastic. It's the best out there, and it's especially great when you are either an expert and you want to just prepare and deploy a base system, or when you're a beginner. They manage to walk the line where you can be on either side of that spectrum and still find this to be extremely useful. They have a very straightforward API too when you're ready to take advantage of tons of great code already written around that. Five dollars a month, you get 512 megabytes of RAM, a 20 gigabyte SSD because they're all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. Yeah, well, the great thing is you're not getting 
you know, 20 gigabytes of one SSD. You're getting 20 gigabytes on a giant array of SSDs. That's <laughs> yeah. super fast. Yeah, it's nice. And then when they have that super fast data connection, too, to the hypervisors. So go check yep. them out at DigitalOcean.com and use our promo code SNAPOcean. And congratulations, DigitalOcean, on another data center. I almost want to just deploy a droplet over there just to say I have servers in India. It just seems awesome to me. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. And a big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. SnapOcean, one word, lowercase. And thanks, you guys, for using that promo code, too. It, uh, that's what keeps us going. <laughs> and, uh, Alan, I love this next story, how the Internet works. That's a great headline right there, and it's a perfect topic for the TechSnap program. Noah and I were just talking about this. We were out on an island, and they were saying, yeah, they're bringing in fiber to this island, and they're lighting up these LTE cell sites using the fiber. And Noah looks at me, and Noah looks at the guy that's telling us about us, and he goes, how do they get the fiber here? How do they? We're on an island. How does that? How does that happen? Uh, which is probably part of this story we're going to cover. Yeah, uh, I didn't get too big into the. You know, this is how a boat works. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think you could probably find that somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never you know. Love you, Noah. <laughs> Hugs and kisses, Noah. All right, so tell me about this. Yes. So yeah, um, you know. The internet's this crazy thing, and it's great. Uh, so Ars put together this 7,000-word uh, story Ooh. on how this works. Um, covers quite a bit. Uh, obviously, we can't cover all of that in the show because each episode of TechSnap, the show notes is usually a little shy of 3,000 words. So this yeah. is more than two whole show notes put together. <laughs> um, but it's got lots of good pictures, too. Uh, but it actually gets into some of the interesting... Um, details and, and stuff and the actual technology behind it, not just, it's not all puff, right? There's a lot of actual detail and stuff that even I didn't know at first. Um, so yes. So, but how does it actually work? Uh, have you ever thought about how the cat picture actually gets from the server in Oregon to your PC in London? <laughs> uh, we're not simply talking about the wonders of TCP IP or, you know, pervasive Wi-Fi hotspots, though those are vitally important as well. No, we're talking about big infrastructure, the huge submarine cables, the vast landing sites and the data centers and their massively redundant power systems and the elephantine labyrinth of last mile networks that actually hook billions of users up to the Internet. So the article actually starts out by looking at the submarine cables between the U.S. and the U.K. And so if you scroll down a little bit below that map, there's a, a big picture of there it is. So that's what one of those submarine cables looked like. You wow. All this padding around the outside, then there's all that steel cable, and then there's the kind of PVC the, uh, like core. yeah, there's this goopy stuff there that that keeps the uh, interference from the outside core from getting to the inside, and then you have all this steel to protect it, and then just in the very center, you see there's just a couple of strands of fiber. There is that, there is. It. After the goop, there is another two layers of steel fiber uh, strands, yep. and then there is a metal pipe inside of that, and then inside of that, there's yep. a couple of strands of fiber. Yeah, and so they talk a bit about that as well. Uh, you know, the amount of shielding on a cable actually depends on how deep the cable is going to be put. Uh, the deeper it is, the less shielding they actually have to use on the cable, uh, because the biggest threat is you know international shipping, or, or you know some chip dropping its anchor on the and snagging the cable and stuff. And so they put lots of shielding on the shallow parts of the cable, uh, especially, you know, if you look at like, you know, the cable that goes from the UK to France or whatever, um, those ones, they have to put a lot more shielding. The ones that are going, you know, 
all the way over to the U.S., uh, in the middle of the ocean, you don't need to put that much stuff on it, right? Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Definitely worth the pictures if you're an audio listener to go yeah, check the show notes. It, if you're deploying a cable that's going to be three miles down, the cable diameter is actually just 17 millimeters, uh, which is not very much, right? That's I don't even think that's an inch, right? Mm-mm. Yeah, an inch is 25 millimeters. Uh, so that's akin to like the marker pen encased in a thick, polyethylene insulated sheath so then there's a copper conductor that surrounds multiple strands of steel wire that then protect the optical cable at the core uh, which is inside a steel tube that's less than three millimeters in diameter and cushioned by this um the exotic jelly goop thing i like that it's exotic <laughs> yeah um, well no it's it's thick so tropic Ah, I forget ah, what okay. that means. Anyway. So yeah, the armored cables have the same arrangement, but they're clad in more layers of galvanized steel wire and then are wrapped more around the cable and so on. Uh, but we'll get to it in a few minutes. But the interesting thing is like one of these huge cables that cost huge amounts of money to make and there are only eight fibers inside of it. Yeah, that I thought for some reason I had a visual that it was thick of fiber. Like I just thought yeah. it was... You know, yeah, I was thinking it was like 4,000 fibers or something, right? I know, because uh, well, also part of me is like, well, if you're going to do something like this, you probably want to do it for like the next 30 years. You don't want to just yeah. do, a, you know, the well, next 10 we'll, years. We'll get into why it's actually done with okay. uh, fewer cables. Interesting. But yeah, without the copper conductor, you wouldn't have subsea cables. Interestingly, fiber optic technology is fast and seemingly capable of unlimited bandwidth, but it doesn't cover long distances without a little help. You know... Immediately, we think, well, the whole point of fiber is that it goes a longer distance than copper cable. So why is it that we have to take our fiber and then wrap it in a copper cable in order to make it go far? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, the answer is repeaters, or, you know, signal amplifiers, are required to boost the light transmission over the length of the fiber optic cable. There's also uh, diffusion, right? As you send the Mm. light through the glass, it eventually gets, you know, the pinpoint of the laser gets wider and wider. Mm -hmm. And so they alternate the cables between ones that actually make it smaller and ones that make it so that it kind of drifts wider and then they'll switch to a cable that starts drifting it back narrower. That is so and then weird. Back wider and narrower as the cable goes along. So yeah, on land, it's easy to achieve this by you just, you know, power each repeater from the power wherever the repeater is, right? You just hook it up to the, your mains power. But in the middle of the ocean, there's no electricity. So you actually have to pump the electricity through the cable under the ocean just like you do the... Uh, all along the cable. So um, they actually send a DC voltage uh, from the sites on either end of the cable down the cable all the way across the ocean. And the power comes from the landing site on either end. Uh, Although the customer wouldn't know it, the Tata Global Network A uh, Atlantic cable is actually two cables that take diverse paths that straddle the Atlantic. So they actually land about 70 miles apart on either end so that you know, if something happens to the one, you can fall back to the other. And uh, hmm. to get from, uh, I forget where in the UK, to New Jersey in the US, uh, they use 148 amplifiers along the route. Uh, actually, the other one takes a slightly longer route and requires 190, hmm. 149 amplifiers. Hmm. And then so, uh, to power the cable from this end, being the UK, uh, they send a positive voltage down the cable. And in New Jersey, there's a negative voltage that gets sent from the other end. Ah. And then we try to maintain the current. The voltage is free to find the resistance in the cable and go wherever. But it's about 9,000 volts. Mm. And we share that voltage between the two ends. So each end basically feeds in 
4,500 volts down the cable because it has to make it all the way to the, you know, that middle repeater, 100 and, or I guess that'd be like, yeah, 75 repeaters out down the middle of the ocean, right? Huh. Uh, so then, then it raises the question, what happens if the cable is damaged? Uh, once the cable has been, or the cable, so the cable gets damaged, you have to go out on it with a ship and then find the cable because, you know, it might have wiggled around a little bit. Uh, once you've found the cable and, you know, brought it up to the cable repair ship so that you can actually work on it, a new piece of uh, undamaged cable is attached to the broken end and the ROV or remotely operated vehicle, a little, you know, robot submarine thing that can go down three miles deep in the ocean. Cool. Uh, then returns to the seabed and finds the other end of the cable and joins the two together. Uh, it then uses a high-pressure water jet to bury the cable about 1.5 meters under the seabed. So that's like five feet or so. Yeah. Huh. And it says repairs normally take around 10 days from the moment the cable ship uh, leaves port uh, with four or five days actually spent on location working on the hmm. break. Fortunately, such incidents are rare. Uh, Virgin Media, which is a big ISP over in the UK that runs some of these cables, uh, has only had to deal with two cable breaks in the last seven years. Wow. Often, uh, you know, the cable breaks you hear about a lot are usually much closer to shore, not out in the middle of the ocean. Hmm. Uh, Yeah, where it's shallower. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, once the cable's been installed, they're expected to last 25 years or more. Uh, And so... The main reason why they don't bundle more cables is the repeaters. So in the repeater, you have to spin those cables out and, uh, you know, feed power into them and then go, right? And so if you sent more than, you know, four pairs down there, you would the repeater would have to get bigger and would require more power. Hmm. And, you know, you're already sending 9,000 volts under the ocean. <laughs> How much more can you send, right? Yeah, it's, it's not and, and each repeater is going to get, like, you know... Twice as big to take a couple more cables. Mm, yeah, um, sure, sure. So then it's up to you to find better ways to get more bandwidth out of the cable. Oh, okay. So, of course, you know, if you install the cable five years ago, you're likely going to be disappointed with the speed today. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's where new technology comes into play. And by just replacing the optics on either end of the cable, you can actually fit more data down the same cable, right? Because it's just a fiber optic just cable. Just glass, yeah. Yeah. So using dense wave division multiplexing technology, uh, you're able to combine the various data channels and by transmitting their signals at slightly different wavelengths uh, which and making you know basically different colors of light uh, down the fiber optic cable, it effectively creates a multiple virtual fiber channels. So you can actually take that one fiber and by adjusting the color of the light, send multiple signals down it. <laughs> Uh, so DWDM allows somewhere between 40 and 160 channels to be sent down a single fiber, depending on how expensive optics use at either end. Hmm. Uh, I only learned about that recently when I actually used DWDM to send a signal from one data center to another. And I had to buy these optics, and it's like I had to get one specifically tuned to channel 22. Hmm. Uh, because there are up to 40 other customers that are going to be using the exact same fiber as me. You know, I couldn't have afforded to run the fiber myself sure. between these two data centers. Sure. But I could rent one channel on a fiber that was already there. It's fascinating. And so uh, for me, each uh, each of those 40 channels does 10 gigabits, right? So I'm only renting one of them, but in the future, I could rent a second one. Sure, over there. yeah. Uh, so all of a sudden, if you had a, you know, the cable they deployed, if, if they, say, got 10 gigabits out of each of the four. So they actually, there's actually eight fibers in the, the Tata cable that, we're, that we saw the pictures of, but... 
it's only four pairs, right? There's one fiber for each direction because you can't send the light down both directions because it would collide into each other and you would never get a signal through it. So there's eight uh, fibers, but that basically gives you four channels uh, or four pairs. So each of those four pairs, if you, if you just, you know, this isn't actually what it was, but if you figure each one was 10 gigabits uh, five years ago when it was set up, then today you'd be like, well, that sucks. But <laughs> if you could send 40 channels down, at 10 gigabits each, yeah. all of a sudden that's 400 gigabits. Mm. Hey, that's not so bad. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, if you do all 160 channels, then that's uh, 6.4 terabits. Suddenly that seems pretty good. Hey-oh. Well, the uh, Tata cable can carry uh, 10 terabits per second in total on each of the four strands, giving them 40 terabits total. Hmm. So that's, that's with the DWDM. So they get 40 terabits or 10 terabits out of each cable, which they then divide up into the 160 channels or so. 10 yeah. terabits. Well, yeah, well, so, so in total, that one fiber is actually providing 10 terabits. So that seems like enough for now. Yes, yeah, that's, that's, I can't really complain about that. Yeah. So they got the, you say, you say, you say what you're saying is they know what they're doing. They, they well, kind of got to figure they, it out. They, oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so if you, if you go into the article there, though, they also explain some of the other technologies that are available uh, to do, you know, multiple fiber or uh, multiple signals down one fiber uh, because there's actually quite a few different ones. Uh, but each one has pros and cons about distance and other stuff, right? Um, wow. Can you imagine the, the data that must flow through these data centers where these come in at? Yeah. Talk about, talk about pressure not to have an outage. Talk about reliability yeah. requirements from a... Yeah, so uh, we'll get to that in just a second here, actually. Okay. But yeah, some of the other technologies they can use are QPSK, which is uh, quadrat- uh, quadrature phase shift keying or binary phase shift keying, which hmm. is also called phase reversal keying sometimes. Cool. Uh, and there's also 16 QAM or uh, quadrature amplitude modulation. Uh, and there's also an eight channel version of it and so on. Um, and they talk about when you would use each different one. So like a short cable, like say going from the UK to the European mainland, uh-huh. uh, can use different technology than one you're going to you know, go all the way across the Atlantic. That makes sense, really. And, and, of course, the right tool for the right job. And you, yeah. you don't need something as expensive either because I'm sure... Right. It, you know, the, the, the fancier, the one that I can do more bandwidth is going to cost more yeah, money. Exactly. <laughs> so, and since, you know, the cable's got to last 25 or more years, but the gear at either end you could replace after a couple of years. Right, so you right. buy the cheaper one now, it's going to be good enough for five years and then replace it later on. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so then we get into redundancy stuff. Yeah, okay. Okay, uh, this has got to so, be good. Yeah, if, uh, if you can find the picture that kind of looks like brains in a jar, that's the one I'm going to talk about. Brains in a jar. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll dig around for brains in a jar while you, while you talk yeah, about um, it. Oh! It's right under all the fiber Are, are you talking stuff. about this thing right here? Yes, that's it. That does look like brains in a jar. <laughs> yeah, so uh, enter one of the two battery rooms at, at the cable site where these land. Uh, and instead of racks of UPS support batteries, you know, normally in the form factor that kind of looks like a car battery. Yeah. Uh, that's what you expect when you see a UPS, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Uh, even big data center ones, it's usually just racks full of these car battery like, yeah. uh, things. Well, no, for these cable sites, they do something different. Yeah, they do. Uh, <laughs> this is weird. Instead, you get a site that looks more like a medical experiment. These are huge lead acid batteries in transparent tanks uh, looking like alien brains in a jar that are just lines of them in this room. Wow. These are maintenance-free batteries uh, in the form factor that will last 50 years. 
Whereas your typical UPS battery is only going to last some smaller number of years and need to be replaced. Why don't we all do this? Uh, well, because they take up a huge amount of space, and I think they're really expensive. Yeah, they do take up a big amount of space. You're right. And, you know, uh, for the cable, they know the amount of power they need for the cable isn't going to change, right? Because they're not going to suddenly upgrade the amplifiers to need more power. Whereas in a regular data center where you're hosting servers, you're always going to need to b- build more power into it. That's true. You need that on. flexibility. That's a good point. Right. Right, so you don't want to buy a system that's going to be great for 50 years because it's not going to be good enough in 10 years, let alone 50. But for this cable, that works fine. So this is an array of 2-volt batteries uh, that can provide about 1,600 amp hours. Uh, and since the, you know, the cables run at quite a low amperage, that's probably going to last for quite a while. Uh, oh, actually, sorry. It delivers a guaranteed four hours of autonomy. So the, all that giant room full of all these batteries only gives you four hours of runtime. That's nuts. Now, they must have, uh, they must have generators. generators yeah. Yes. So there are six generators, three per data center hall. Each generator is rated to take the full load of the entire data center, which is 1.6 megavolt amps, uh, which is about um, 1,280 kilowatts each. You know, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that explains the runtime. Yeah. Uh, so that brings the total for the site to six megavolt amps, which is probably enough to run half of a town. Wow. Uh, yeah. There's also a, a seventh generator that handles landlord services. So, you know, the offices and the lights there and all that kind of stuff. So the site stores about 8,000 liters of fuel, which is enough to last well over 24 hours at full load. Uh, speaking of full load, at full fuel burn, they use 220 liters of diesel per hour. Woo. Which, if you were a car traveling 60 miles per hour <laughs> down the highway, would bring you in at 1.24 uh, miles per gallon. <laughs> well, that's, I got to say, even my RV gets better than that. Yeah, that makes a Humvee look like a Prius. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, they're working hard, I guess. Yep. Uh, so then the article goes in to talk about the SLA, or service level agreements, which is the guarantees that the customers get about, you know, the cable being up and mm-hmm, being sure. able to deliver your packets within so many milliseconds and, and you know, not losing too many packets and that kind of thing. Uh, so they say um, latency commitments have been uh, are monitored proactively. You know, customers like Citrix who uh, provide all these virtualization services and virtual desktops and cloud applications are very excess, uh, sensitive to excessive late uh, network delay. Right. Uh, if you get too much buffering or something, then trying to remote desktop is really annoying. Right. Uh, whereas other clients appreciate the need for speed, like Formula One. Uh, Tata Communication <laughs> handles all the event networking and everything to for the live broadcast and everything from all the Formula One events. So they have to actually go to every racetrack when there's going to be a Formula One event there and build the network hmm. that's going to be used by the official race and all the teams and drivers and so on. Wow. Uh, right, and they talk right. about all the stuff they have to do for that, and they have some great pictures of the knock and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a, this is this is a super great. No wonder why it's so freaking long. Yeah, uh, they got some really great footage, and they, they answered some really interesting questions, mm-hmm. and and some good hardware porn in there too. Look at all this. Uh, yeah, look at all yeah. That. Lots of stuff from the data center. They, there's uh, some talk about um, multi-protocol label switching versus IP, and why they use some of uh, some of the. Most of the packets that go across the transatlantic cable are actually being routed with MPLS instead of TCP/IP and BGP. Like, so there's TCP/IP and BGP inside the packet, but the actual routing across the cable is done at a different protocol uh, that's 
that's actually lower level than TCP IP huh. and allows them to make certain decisions or decide that this traffic is more important or, you know, this traffic should definitely always end up at this end of the cable or something. Hmm. Or, you know, this one should always take the slightly longer route across the cable. I'm showing some pictures <clears throat> of the knock for the video. So yeah. can I share something with you that's only very loosely related? It just happened to sure. me yesterday, though. Okay. Um, Noah and I were stretching our legs. We were on an hour-long ferry ride. And as we were walking by a crew-only area, they left the door open. And we looked in to the crew-only area and saw that they are running fiber throughout the whole boat, connecting all the different areas of the boat, I, which surprised me because these boats are, uh, are pretty old. And so we figured that when they finally came down to, well, we got to network this dang boat, they just went all in. And we saw fiber in a, in a I mean, it must be a 30-year-old, I'm not even sure how old it is, but uh, pretty neat. On a, and we thought to ourselves, what was exactly the point? There's no connectivity outside the boat, really. So on the boat, the boat's land is super fast. <laughs> so even even above the sea, well, I guess they're using fiber. At some point, you think they would get like a, a 4G connection in there and they, offer Wi-Fi. Yeah, they actually do. Uh, it's just uh, you know, really slow. Yeah, it's not so great. But uh, pretty cool. But to actually, see yeah, I, I have a, a friend in Ireland who literally just installs computer stuff in boats for a living. Yeah. Like uh, you more, know, more ships than boats, but yeah. Why not? Right? Why not go fiber? It's not horribly mm -hmm. expensive, I suppose, right? So. Well, and you can have trouble with running too much copper in a, yeah. you know, uh, you can worry about corrosion and stuff, right? You're, if you're especially, you're talking like salt water, right? Yeah. Fiber is just yeah. actually more durable in some of those cases. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah and I, I was talking to Noah. He said he's going to do fiber in his whole basement where he's going to have his entertainment system and all that. I mean, you know, I guess if you're doing it right now, you're in I the walls right now. I guess if you're in the walls, why not? Uh, you know what else? Speak. You know, let's do. Let's change topics. Let's go from wired to wireless. Yeah, that's right. TechSnap.ting.com. That's where you go to sign up for my mobile service provider. I switched to Ting simply because it's only pay for what you use, and uh, I don't make a lot of calls. I don't do a lot of text. I do a lot of uh, data. But I mostly do that on Wi-Fi these days. And when I'm not, I sort of treat my cellular as backup. You can't really do that with the regular cell providers. And that might not be your particular mix, but that's the mix that works for me. And Ting is really modular like that. It's flexible because it's just pay for what you use. $6 for each line, one line, 30 lines, $6. Find a deal like that. $6 a line. And then it's just your usage on top of that, plus anything Uncle Sam takes. TechSnap.Ting.com will save you $25 off a device. Or if you have a compatible device, and you just might, because they've got GSM and CDMA networks, hoo-hoo, yeah, then you can just uh, bring your device over, and they'll give you a $25 service credit. Average monthly bill per device is around $23. Now, that's for a smartphone that you own outright that's unlocked. Whoa! $23. TechSnap.ting.com. Go check that out. Also, for you cord cutters like me, they have a series of cord cutter posts and this one's good, uh, educational favorites for cord cutters. And that's actually kind of nice because one of the things I do miss, even though it's kind of crappy these days, is like the History Channel and Discovery Channel and like the Military Channel and, you know, just like the historical stuff where you could go watch something that was kind of interesting and somewhat educational. It's not really like that anymore on TV, so it's not like I'm missing out on much, but they've sort of highlighted that same kind of stuff for cord cutters, you know, more closer to what I'm actually looking for. And I, I like this, and they also have a spot specifically for kids, which can sometimes hit you hard when you're doing the cutting the cord. So they have a great blog you can follow from time to time. And just reading that, going to techsnap.ting.com and learning more about them helps us. 
and look at some of their great devices. Like this Ansatel One Touch Idle 3 they're doing a giveaway on. If you want to know more about that, go to their blog. It's pretty easy. They got a GSM 4.7 inch screen. Uh, and also, I guess they also has a 5.5 inch model. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're doing an unboxing and a giveaway. You can find out more about that to get the free phone. When you get a phone from Ting, either you bring it or if you buy one from them directly, you own that phone. It's unlocked, it's yours. It's not like part of some sort of, well, if you leave early, then you have to pay the missing amount, the, the remaining amount. And if you don't, then you have to give us back the phone and just pay this amount. And you also, if you get this phone, even though we're not putting you in a contract, you do have to get device insurance on this. Uh, and this also is an 18-month a month agreement. Mm-hmm. Stop playing around that. Just that's, that, that game sucks. TechSnap.ting.com. No more, my friends. TechSnap.ting.com. <clears throat> Yeah, go check them out. So, uh, Mr. Jude, yeah. So I was pretty impressed with fiber on the ferry. I thought that was uh, I thought that was a pretty cool story. Mm-hmm. So uh, I know you guys have a uh, BSD Now program that uh, came out recently, episode one forty four. Uh, Rikai got it out super early today. Yes, so we, should give it, we should give it a plug. The PF Life. The PF yes. Life. <laughs> uh, so this is an interview we did, uh, the last of the interviews we did at Asia BSDCon in Tokyo earlier this year. Uh, and we have an interview with... Um, Christoph Provost, uh, about working on PF in FreeBSD. Oh, man. Now, you know that's got to be applicable to a lot of the interest of our audience because PF yep. comes up all the time, both BSD yeah, so now and TechSnap. Uh, there's a bunch of interesting things about uh, fragment handling and IPv6 and all that kind of stuff. Holy smokes. That's a that's a killer interview. Check it out, guys. Yep. Episode 144 of the BSD Now program. Uh, so then the article goes on to talk about how to actually connect your house to the internet, right? The last mile. Uh, and it covers all the different technologies that have been used there over the years. So uh, there's this great diagram that kind of shows how your house is connected, usually via like twisted pair of copper to a distribution point, you know, that green box somewhere down the street. Yeah, yeah. And then that goes to maybe a bigger box somewhere. Uh, and then that eventually gets back to one of those hub sites, you know, a building for the telco. And then that gets on the metro fiber and actually connects to like a data center. And then it goes out <laughs> to the Internet, right? The job bones connected to the. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. OK. Uh, and, you know, there's some actually more detailed uh, diagrams, actually. Uh, if you look at the one, uh, the third one. Mm-hmm. In that, this guy. Yeah. So then you can actually see. So your house is actually and this one is on the right. Uh, and you see then the, your house is connected to the telephone poles, which uh, is called the distribution point. So that little, uh, in the new plan, there actually be a box up on the telephone pole every so many telephone poles. And that's where they'll have in what they call fiber to the distribution point, hmm. which is actually one step closer than the old one, which is fiber to the cabinet, which is that green box kind of in the middle. And that's the box that's, uh, you know, on somebody's lawn down the street or whatever. Uh, and that's where all the old telephone lines used to connect to. And you can see in the diagram here, there's actually a line that comes out of the green box and goes into an old-fashioned looking telephone. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. We, so, we've all heard of fiber to the cabinet, which is where they put fiber up to there and then do copper to your house, which is much cheaper and doesn't require, you know, digging to get to your house. But with the new one, they'll have fiber to the distribution point where they'll actually have it to a box uh, to some telephone pole on your street. And it'll get you that much closer over um, fiber so that the distance – because copper – the further you go, the less the speed is. So the shorter the copper run to your house, the more speed they can give you. And then, um, then it goes back and so on. And then there's full fiber to the home where they get all the way to your house with fiber. Hmm. So then there's I the different technologies. For, you know, uh, it, the fiber thing going, just by the way, just as an aside here in the U.S., 
Not going so well, Alan. <laughs> Just not going so well. Yeah. The uh, the, the files were here in Washington was totally yep. killed. They ended it. Yeah. Well, I think Verizon stopped all files rollouts, didn't they? They're not yeah. doing anywhere. And they sold it off. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so then they talk about some of the newer technologies that they're starting to use and where they're starting to use them, what ISPs and so on. Uh, but you know, everybody's familiar with uh, the old ADSL, but now they have uh, VDSL too. Uh, which uh, allows speeds up to 78 megabits per second. So that's not that great, but it's, you know, that's plenty for now. It's a lot better than a lot of people have, especially in the U.S. Um, as is the case with the older DSL or ADSL and ADSL2, you end up with a DSLAM. But instead of that DSLAM being in the central office, the bigger building that's then connected to these distribution, uh, to the, the green boxes, sure. the DSLAM is in each of those green boxes. So that's by putting it closer to you, you get more speed over the existing copper. Okay. Uh, so it's not completely retrofitless. They do have to change the port uh, that actually goes into your house, but that's it. Mm -hmm. No digging and less, a lot less of an install setup. And so it's a lot cheaper uh, than doing full fiber to the home. And it gets people enough speed for now. Hmm. Uh, so yeah, they have these... Uh, so that's VDSL2. Then there's DOCSIS, which is very popular in the U.S. and elsewhere. And that's basically data over cable service, right? So that's yeah. giving you uh, your typical cable modem. And that currently uh, Virgin Media in the U.K. does 200 megabits or 300 megabits for business. Ooh. But the standard there can actually go uh, to four, five, or 600 megabits per second. Yeah, isn't it and funny, then, though, how that always is the case? And it always seems like the standard goes much higher than we ever see in, in implementation. Right. Well, it's because the the DOCSIS takes you back over copper to one of these green boxes, which only has so much bandwidth going into it. Ah, yeah. The other thing is the distance. Right. If you're close to the green box, sure, you can get more speed. Uh, right. But, you know, uh, as they move those boxes closer to people and put out more of them, then when they can maybe actually get more of the speed. It's funny, though, how you always hear those numbers and then the actual implementation. It's like LTE, well, well, right, and 4G. Well, too. that, too. It's like, yeah, so the DOCSIS standard can handle up to 600 megabits, but that's if you are, you know, if the green box happens to be on your yard. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it's like, over what distance can you actually manage that? Mm -hmm. And the bigger thing is, you know, if, if you give everybody on the street 600 megabits, how many gigabits do you need to get to the green box? Right. Um, and so on. Uh, the and then there's Doxis 3.1, which claims to be able to do up to 10 gigabits per user. Uh, well, 10 gigabits down, but only one gigabit up because up is harder. Hmm. Um, and then they're actually looking at, so you remember we talked about like 8 and 16 QAM uh, for the fiber cables? Yeah. Uh, well, they have 4096 QAM for uh, end users. <laughs> All, Again, right. All right. Much shorter distance, but you can split that one cable up and give you uh, 4,000 channels. <laughs> So finally, uh, you'll be able to stream 4K. Well, no, this will be connecting 4,000 households over uh, and hauling it back to the other end over one cable. Oh, so instead of upgrading individual connections, they'll upgrade the overall infrastructure capability. Right. So it'll upgrade what they can get out of that green box and so on. Yeah, okay. And then there's uh, stuff like uh, G.Fast and ODFM and so on. Uh, and then the other interesting one they have, obviously, is wireless and mobile. You know, uh, not everybody gets their connection over a cable. Shocking. Uh, so then uh, Ars is actually going to do a completely separate in-depth feature, similar to this one, on the complexities of managing and rolling out a cellular network. Uh, but that's not out yet. Man, that So they're not going to talk about 4G very much right in this article because they're going to have a whole other article on sure, it. Sure, that's a, that's a 
beast of a of a mm-hmm. I just have a teensy tiny insight from having a client who designed cell towers for cell networks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah. Uh Fascinating. Yeah, so they say, you know, at first Wi-Fi was something that maybe certain cafes or pubs might have had, but <laughs> there wasn't that much Wi-Fi. You couldn't, you couldn't get by very far using other people's Wi-Fi until a couple of years ago. Yeah. Then BT started turning uh, customers' routers into open Wi-Fi hotspots uh, so that, you know, if you were a customer of, you know, I think Comcast did the same thing, right? Yeah, they have, yep. And now another one has too, and they've, they've partnered up with Comcast. Right, and so there's a bunch of these so that if you happen to be a customer of one of these companies, you can use this alliance of users' uh, Wi-Fis to make sure you have connectivity. Um, Neat idea. Uh, cool, yeah. cool idea. It also Implementation's means... not so great. <laughs> oh, man. It is everywhere, everywhere where you have a group of people like an office building or an apartment, 2.4 is, u- un- is useless. It is com- 2.4 okay. is just completely useless, and for some reason, they're not. None of these boxes, in my experience, because I'm going in there with Wi-Fi analyzer on my Nexus, and I'm looking at this, and none of them are doing proper channel detection because, like, all of them are on the same channel. They're all. Well, there's much... only like three usable channels anyway. It's, it's bad. like one, six, and twelve, or whatever, right? Yeah, um, or eleven. It's 11, gotten 11. so bad that there are li- there's just legitimately places now where your Wi-Fi just just yeah. doesn't work. And well, the only reason five gigahertz works better is because it doesn't have the range, right? It doesn't go through walls, and yeah. so you just get more isolation from other people. And there's slightly less free, you know, ISP routers out there that are doing. Yes, yeah, there's fewer devices on the five gigahertz now, but its only real saving grace is that it doesn't go through walls as well, which can actually make it not as useful depending on your setup. Yeah, it's super frustrating. Uh, but then you know we started getting things like uh, the London Underground has free Wi-Fi, uh, and then. Virgin Mobile in the UK started doing smart pavement blocks. So they replaced uh, manhole covers with this special uh, resin that's uh, transparent to radios and started putting Wi-Fi in the pavement. So replacing manhole covers with Wi-Fi access points, basically, Hmm. which is kind of an interesting idea. I do like that a lot. I like that, and I also like uh, the the Wi-Fi access points and the streetlights idea that I think we talked about Mm -hmm. a while ago. But yeah, that's a cool yeah. idea. Uh, Virgin said the interesting thing there is normally the concept with doing large, like mass Wi-Fi is get up as high as you can and transmit as, as with as strong a signal as you can. Whereas this one, they basically stuck within what's allowed from a regular home Wi-Fi and put it under the street. Uh, in particular, um, Virgin owns a lot of these little underground things where they connect all the cables and cable ducts and so on. And so they had the right to, you know, it's their manhole cover they're replacing, so they didn't have to get permission from anybody. <laughs> that's that. Now, that's brilliant. And they found that uh, in the one place they're doing it, the city council was in favor of it because, you know, <laughs> it helps tourism and business. And exactly. So. It really does. It really, really does. Uh, and that's something I think a lot of uh, cities are starting to wake up to is there's a big tourism boom to it. Yeah. Uh, and then, so, yeah. So what's next in last mile technology? Uh, so one of the next things on the horizon is OpenReach uh, has, uh, for its plain old telephone network, is G.Fast, which is uh, best described as fiber to the distribution point. So this is getting the fiber, instead of just the green the cabinet, the green box somewhere in your neighborhood, it would be to a smaller box up on the telephone pole somewhere near your house. Uh, so there would be, you know, instead of one big green box servicing hundreds of homes, right. there would be this individual box that serves like, 10 homes. Huh. Uh, so each 10 homes would share one fiber instead of hundreds of homes sharing one fiber. That goes back to their central distribution. And that allows them more bandwidth and 
a shorter distance on copper so they can do more speed over that existing copper. Sweet. So again, it's fiber to copper arrangement, but the D-slam is placed closer to your house and, uh, you know, up telephone poles or under pavement. And so the conventional twisted pair uh, gets a shorter number of meters, like tens of meters instead of hundreds. And so you can get a lot more speed. The, The idea is to get fiber as close to the customer as possible while at the same time minimizing the length of copper, theoretically enabling connection speeds anywhere from 500 to 800 megabits. Uh, GFAST operates over a broader frequency spectrum than VDSL2 because it doesn't have to coexist with the telephone signal. Right. So it can use, you know, originally ADSL was designed to use this range of frequencies that your voice doesn't, that just happen to work over the cable. Uh, whereas VDSL or uh, with GFAST will be able to use the whole cable. Mm. Excellent. And so longer cable lengths uh, have even more impact on its efficiencies. So keeping it short is ideal. Uh, there's also some doubt whether open reach will uh, be optimized speeds that high, 500 megabits or so on. It's likely it'll grow slower and, and basically they don't necessarily have the backhaul to be able to start throwing 500 megabits at everybody because if you do, people will start using it. Hmm. Uh, but speeds of like 300 megabits are, are quite likely apparently. All right. I can take that. Yeah. So say uh, so. There you have it. The next time you click on a YouTube video, you'll know exactly how it gets from a server in the cloud to your computer. It might seem, uh, you know, absolutely effortless uh, on the most part, but you know, you know the truth that there's uh, four thousand volts of DC going under the ocean, backed by ninety-six tons of batteries and, a th- and thousands of liters of diesel fuel and millions of uh, last-mile cabling and uh, redundancy up the wazoo. That is. Sort of nice to think about how yep. much work goes into uh, just the yep. people that are watching our live stream right now from across the pond. All over the world, yeah. yeah. Uh, the whole setup is only going to get bigger and crazier as we get smart homes, wearable devices, and on-demand TV and movies all going to need more bandwidth, more reliability, and more brains in jars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we are getting more brains in jars. Yep. Uh, I want some of those brains in jars here. I think that'd be really cool. They should, uh, they should, make, those, uh, they should make those on, put those out on the market. That's a really, really awesome write-up. Yep. Uh, I really like this uh, this last mile diagram, too. I don't know if I've ever really seen it so clearly laid out like that before. Yeah. Well, some of the other ones where you just see what it looks like inside one of those green boxes is just like every bit mm-hmm. of space is taken up by tiny wires. And it's yeah. like, yeah, I wouldn't want to have to dig around in there. Like you can, I think there's one that's a little bit more zoomed in. And you just see... Just All of wires the, uh, everywhere. Yeah, yeah there, I think there is one in there. But yeah, there's, there's lots of great pictures in there. You should check out the article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially the ones that show the cable sizes and stuff like that. That's yep. particularly, particularly great. Well, yep. <clears throat> look at ours. I guess that originally ran at ours UK. And so they yep. brought it over here. Very cool. You can find a link to that to read the entire thing in the TechSnap 269 show notes. Everything is copiously linked and the best bits documented for your review over there. At jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just look for TechSnap 269. Now I'm going to tell you about our friends over at iX Systems. <laughs> iXSystems.com slash TechSnaps, where you go to find out more, support the show, and learn all about those cool iX rigs powered by Intel processors. iXSystems.com slash TechSnap also has a white paper you can download. Go check them out. Super slick company building enterprise-grade hardware for you personally, your small business, or your huge enterprise endeavor. They have a whole range of products that really satisfies. Uh, but I want to take a moment and talk about something else on the lighter side. I was over on the IX blog, and I noticed that they did a little post that I thought deserved a little attention. I'm sure you saw this about the donation they did. Well, so we, we talked about the donation on one of the podcasts. We talked week. about it like months ago, I thought. 
Well, yeah, so the, so there's original one last year, and then we talked about. I think on BSD now we talked about it uh-huh. uh, um, a couple of weeks ago, but this is an even newer post. Yes. yes. Uh, so you know when we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, it was that the school board's website was now up and running yep. off uh, that the students built was now up and running off the IX rig. This new post is actually that they presented that at the state computer fair and won first place. Hey, oh, that's awesome. So remember when they donated that one new server to Pennsylvania High School, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so part three is they're putting, that's a great way to put it too. That's awesome. Look at this Heather with their award. That is so cool. IX Systems is really connected to the community in a way that is an obvious value add to their company because they inter- yeah. they interact with people at all these different events. They talk to the people writing the code, making these things happen. A lot of them work for IX, too. Here's a uh, wrap-up from OSCON 2016, which JB didn't make it to this year. Uh, and so well, Annie moved has, it. That didn't help, right? Yeah, moved it from Portland, which was in our backyard, to Texas, which is sort of the opposite of my backyard. Uh, so <laughs> made it a little harder. And uh, But maybe maybe in the future. I'd love to make it out to Texas sometime. Anyways, check it out. There's Drew chatting up with people at the uh, BSD booth. And that's the first time there, and so I'm glad they're able to make it. Uh, so nice write-up from, from I don't uh, I don't know who took the pictures, but those are great pictures too. You can find out more at IX Systems website. Go find out rigs from free NAS systems up to their huge true NAS de- devices, and also complete solutions for whatever your workload might be, from a back-end solution to something like live crazy streaming infrastructure with servers all over the world and some sort of scaling engine. Yes, or. Uh, I'm really excited with some of the stuff they're doing with NVMe now. Oh, yeah? These, like, 800-gigabyte PCI cards yeah. uh, that do, like, 4 gigabytes per second oh, boy. of reads and, like, one and 1.7 gigabytes per second of writes. Oh, boy. Uh, and they're designing this chassis where you just fill it with those, and it's just like... Oh, oh. <laughs> it's like my database server would be so fast. Yeah. Yeah, that could be huge. You could use that. I mean, you could use that. What you probably use that in place of uh, a cache too, instead of using like an SSD, right? You could put the cache yeah, you, on there. You can. You could decide to put just one in your storage machine for for your cache or something. Or you could do a whole. Yeah. <laughs> or, right. or you could be like, I just want all of it. Oh wow, that is that's really cool. Check them out. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Go there, find out more, and maybe even check out that white paper to help move things along the chain. Now we must not delay anymore because our inbox is a calling. It is. It's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. Or maybe you even started a thread in our subreddit at techsnap.reddit.com. Our first email this week comes in from Mr. Zach. And uh, Zach writes, uh, every time you read a story about some new vulnerability found with a commercial router firmware, Alan usually reacts by advocating users should build their own router. Not only will having full control over the router allow you to keep it patched, which is key, uh, but it will be more performative, given how underpowered all the off-shelf routers are. Good points, Zach. Uh, Now, he goes on to say, his girlfriend and I are about to move into their first apartment together, and I'm using this as an opportunity to set up a network just the way I want, starting, oh man, I remember doing that, starting with a custom router. Yeah, there you go. I've searched the internet for articles detailing how to build your own wireless router. I know that I can take any old PC, install PFSense on it, and go from there. However, I'm unsure if I will get wireless capabilities on any old PC. Ideally, I'd like to buy a relatively inexpensive computer and set it up with as a dedicated router. It should have more than one Ethernet port allowing me to connect to a networking switch to it, and 
I'm wondering if you guys could have any suggestions on what would be a good option to buy, along with any additional resources or setting up as securely as possible. Thanks so much. Keep up the excellent work. I've been a longtime TechSnap listener, and I never miss an episode. Boy, that sounds like a fun project. What do you think, Alan? Uh, so what I did was, uh, when I switched to the PFSense, was reuse my old wireless router. So the old wireless access point thing I had, is a little, like, net gear or something, um, was just go into its admin interface and turn off DHCP and all the other features it tried to do and make it just a dumb access point. Hmm, uh, yeah. Then connect one of the ports from its built-in switch into my PFSense, and now it basically provided Wi-Fi in one of the NICs on the PFSense. Hmm. Or you could plug it into the switch or use the switch that built into it as your switch even because, right, it's just a dumb switch. Yeah, um, yeah. And then when clients connect to the wireless access point, they authenticate over wireless to it, but then they, when they send the DHCP request, because it's disabled on the access point thing, it goes to the PFSense and they get their access from there. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you can actually set the um, uh, web interface on the access point to be in a subnet that doesn't exist or whatever, and then nobody can get to it, and you kind of disabled it. Have you found, uh, it, have you found it's been useful to have your wireless be on a separate device that you can reboot independently of your main firewall? Uh, I've never had to reboot. Uh, since then, I've replaced that Netgear with a tiny little Japanese thing. That's about mm, right, right. Um, but, uh, yeah, that can, it can be helpful to be able to... Uh, Part of the reason for me actually was to position it in a different place. Uh, so my PFSense, my router rig is in a rack in my basement, you know, in a big metal cage and, you know, not in an ideal position because it's in one corner of the house. Yeah. Well, the wireless is actually in the wiring closet in the laundry room, which is actually more centralized. Uh, and okay. so okay. the actual wireless access point is centered in the house, whereas the router is over in a corner. And so that can make a difference too. I have found that um, I've, I, you know, I've gone, I've gone with a PFSense that has wireless. I found PFSense is great at that job. It's been super yep. rock solid. If you if you get a compatible wireless thing, that works great. Uh, they sell some, I think, on the PFSense store. Mm -hmm. They also sell complete devices. If you instead of trying to find an old PC, if you don't have one or whatever, you can just buy yeah. uh, a device that's guaranteed to work with PFSense. Yeah. Um, Although I think I'm, I think I'm more along. I think I'm, I'm more Allen speed on having a separate wireless device because in the well, past, mostly it's just you know finding one that's compatible can be annoying. Yeah, you know the other thing that was sort of annoying when I had it all in one unit is whenever I'm doing any kind of ISP troubleshooting, which happens you know maybe a couple times a year in some places. Maybe it's not a big deal, but whenever I had something where I was, well, I'll reboot the modem. Oh, now I better reboot the router just to make sure. Or they want you to as part of a troubleshooting technique. Having my LAN be dropped every time that happens just aggravated all of the problems I was having whenever I'm having any ISP issues. And one of the things that I really don't like having is I don't like having LAN issues at the same time I'm having WAN issues because the two things are so directly connected. So I like breaking those functionalities up so that way if I'm having – if, my, if, I, if my, my WAN link is down for some reason, at least all my internal LAN stuff still works. I can still do all local media playback. I can talk to devices. File sharing still works. Um, name, even just having devices pop on and pop off the network now with all these crappy devices that do auto discovery and that's the only way they talk to each other, it just aggravates the situation. So having them separate, I have found works best. And what you could do is just do, do it as two separate projects. Do the PFSense router firewall project, get that, nail that, 
remove that whole wireless question, which is going to not only probably bring up the cost of your PFSense box, but add more complexity. So that way you can focus on what PFSense does really well. And then I would say best case scenario is go find a really well-reviewed piece of hardware that does wireless that even if you you could try just with the stock firmware, and if they get crappy about updates, find something that's compatible with an open source firmware. And yeah, uh, things like DDWRT well. and, and OpenWRT. Uh, <laughs> if you go to the website, they have a huge list of compatible routers, and that's quite handy as well. Yeah, uh, I would say definitely check. Just consider that. But Zach, you're gonna go. You're gonna have. You're gonna have good success either way. And if the mm-hmm. if the if like the connection coming in is super solid, and you don't really think you're gonna have to ever worry about troubleshooting and rebooting your firewall as a troubleshooting well, thing. When, when the ISP tells me to reboot, I don't. I know. I, I, I pretend <laughs> I do. Right. Yeah. Okay. Do. I'll, I'll get it's right like, on that. If, if I'm having the problem <laughs> on the PF sense, <laughs> reboot's not gonna. I know, you know. right? Yeah. I'll bounce. I, I would be willing to bounce the interface. Like, okay, yep. or release, renew. Sure, but yeah, the the whole thing. Yes, I agree. On release, renew yeah, Windows. Yeah, that's what they say. I mean, that's okay. what they'll tell you to do, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so Nacho Crunchy writes in with our next one. He says, "I'm looking for an open source router such as PFSense where I can use the ICAP. Is that I'm missing that right? I don't actually know what it is, and they didn't explain it. Very ICAP well, features uh, of Squid, which I. Uh-huh, right. Uh, and uh, he wants something that'll do antivirus scanning of the traffic. Do you know of any ready-built proxies such as PFSense or IPFW where I could use it as an ICAP client? I'm testing data loss prevention where the DLP, that's what data loss prevention server is, content scanning. So what do you think, um, Normally, for the actual firewalls, so like PF or IPFW, there's a system called um, divert, or divert socket where you can actually send the packet out into user land to, to have scanning in that. And that's how uh, a lot of the squid-based proxy stuff works. So uh, if there's an ICAP feature built into squid, there is a squid module for PFSense. And so it shouldn't be that hard to get from that to what you're looking point for. Point A to point B. Yeah. Yep. Um, although to customize too much, you know, you start getting away from what's supported by PFSense. Although mm. uh, I'm sure they would love to uh, build in this DLP-type feature. Um, but in the meantime, you, you might have better luck by going with vanilla FreeBSD, setting up PF similar to the PFSense, and then uh, divert to Squid and then configure the Squid and the DLP. Uh, but in general, then yeah, that should just work. Uh, you know, it's a common feature of mm-hmm. both of the firewalls and FreeBSD. All right, Mr. R writes in with a question about proper backups. I have a couple of DigitalOcean servers that I run a few small websites off of. Thanks for the hookup, by the way. And thanks to Alan's influence, they all run FreeBSD. However, DigitalOcean doesn't offer the backups on those machines. As the websites, I wonder if that'll change soon. As the websites use WordPress and other database-driven technologies, I would like to arrange backups. I, I don't need super crazy solutions just to, just daily for a week, one once a week, once a week, geez, uh, for a month, and one a month for a year, or you know something like that. I also have a nice FreeNAS Mini where I'm at my place, and thought maybe it'd be a good idea to store it on there. Yay ZFS, hiding behind my PFSense firewall. Do you see what y'all have done here? <laughs> TLDR: Guidance on a good FreeBSD web server backup strategy, or maybe refer me to some info you've done in the past. Thanks, Mr. Yep. R. Uh, so because your digital ocean will be UFS, uh, although UFS actually does have a limited snap, uh, snapshot capability. So your best bet there is actually to take a snapshot on UFS, then back up the whole system from that snapshot, because that way files that are changing during the backup will all be recorded as exactly how they were when the snapshot was taken. And then 
uh, with UFS, you don't want to keep the snapshots around, though, so you destroy it at the end of the backup. Um, and then you can shunt that off to your FreeNAS. Uh, hmm. If you have a couple, it's probably worth setting up Bacula. It's not that much work, and it, it automates this really nicely and you know emails you when backups get done. And, and works with and MySQL. And when they don't, it's wrong. Yeah, and it works with MySQL or Postgres, and uh, it just it works very nicely. Um, but you can also use simpler things. Uh, the big one is, you know, um, you can even, you know, cheese it a little bit and do the rsync backup to your FreeNAS as long as you're taking the snapshots right. on the FreeNAS so that you're keeping the older versions of the files as well. So what about using something in conjunction with, like, there are 101, so you'd have to find a well-reviewed one, but in something with, in conjunction with some of the WordPress plugins that automate the database? Well, so they take a backup to a file, but they're yeah. not going to take care of sending it to your FreeNAS. And stuff. No, but you, then you, you combine that with something like rsync. Yeah, uh, but really what you probably want to, he wants to back up the the files from the WordPress and so yeah. on, so you're better just doing like a whole system. There, are a, there are a couple of plugins that will do not just the database, but the mm-hmm. entire WordPress site. And some of them, and this is, this is probably not something that would be a good scalable solution, but some of them also support like just saving to Dropbox. So they, mm-hmm. they back up, they do a tar GZ of the database and all of the WordPress directory, and then it saves it to your Dropbox folder. Um, but yep, you know those and, things, uh, those plugins come and go. So I wouldn't yeah. really and recommend yeah, that as a backup. Dropbox is not a good day. Right. Uh, there's also obviously Tarsnap, uh, which is specifically designed to back up your FreeBSD box. Mm-hmm. Well, it works on Linux and Windows and everywhere else as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works very nicely, and it's uh, has a really really smart deduplication algorithm so that it it detects you know when a file changes, it doesn't have to send the whole new version of the file. It can actually figure out what changed. Yeah, but it doesn't do it. Uh, quite in you know in chunks like regular blocks, it has a dynamic block size to actually find the smallest version of the change, instead of just saying oh this 4K of the file definitely changed and this 4K of the file definitely changed. Mm. Uh, so it's really complicated math in there, uh, hence why it was built by a mathematician. But uh, TarSnap works really well as well. Yeah. So Samuel writes. Yeah, the big thing is you want it offsite and you want to keep that history like you were talking about. And Bacula is definitely the easiest way to get all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but TarSnap works great too. Bacula is going to be the one that gives you the most realistic, like bulletproof, reportable, trackable solution. And the easiest way to configure I want to keep this many weeklies, this many dailies, this many monthlies, et cetera. But realistically, uh, what you're trying to do is you're just you're trying to get a snapshot of the database and the WordPress directory or wherever the web files are at and get them off the box. And yeah. that could be a simple bash cron job and an rsync, and yeah, you do uh, snapshots on your free NAS. I don't know if it's still around or still any good, but back in 2002, what I used was a little shell script called Flex Backup. Hmm. Maybe it was Shell or Perl, one of the two. Uh, and it created these daily, weekly tar files. Okay, and one more idea. Driving the same machine. One more idea, just because they're already DigitalOcean droplets. You could also, if depending on the data centers they're in, take advantage of private networking and spin up another droplet that runs something like Backup PC or Bacula, and then run that over private networking, which would not go against your transfer count and would be secure. I mean, that would that'd be another way to go. And then you could, ha- well, that's then that's not taking advantage of your FreeNAS Mini, but that's another option too. Yep. So, all right, Samuel writes, and speaking of FreeNAS, he's got a question. Well, about, I guess the other one is uh, if <laughs> sorry, DigitalOcean gets around to ZFS. Uh, having GFS-based droplets, yeah. depending if you have enough RAM, then yep. you just take a snapshot and replicate the whole damn thing to your free Exactly. Which, I wouldn't be surprised if that's not 
going to happen one day. Exactly. So it may just solve your problem. But in the meantime, Samuel has a free now slowdown we can help. He says, hey guys, first time caller, long time listener, I've enjoyed your show and I like Alan's explanations on exploits and the hacks in the news. Now onto my problem. I have been having trouble with my FreeNAS setup ever since I started using it. Transferring a large number of files causes the transfer to slow down and then stop. When I first started testing FreeNAS, I had an AMD rig with uh, 20 gigabytes of DDR3, no ECC, an AMD Athlon X4 8060K, six hard drives consisting of two 3-terabyte Western Digital Reds and two 2-terabyte Seagate NAS drives and two 120-gigabyte 10K WD Raptors to hold the FreeNAS. Now... I had to set it up. The only pool with all four drives on a RAID, I had it set up with a RAID Z1 uh, and would get tests about 100 megs a second. But it would start copying, when I'd start copying over all my photos to it over SIFs from my Windows box, it would go for a few minutes, then it would just stop. It got to the point where then I figured it was because of the fact that I was using a non server hardware. Maybe I need to get ECC RAM and maybe I need to get an Intel NIC. So I bought and acquired a super micro machine, an Intel Celeron uh, CPU, 8 gigabytes of DDR3 with ECC. Uh, he talks about the uh, SATA card he got, which is a, which is a Cybia. How do you say that? Cybia? No idea. Never heard of it before. With all of that set up, I have installed two 4-terabyte Western Digital Reds, one 3-terabyte Western Digital Red, four 3-terabyte Seagate NAS drives set up in a RAID Z2, and then I have six 500-gigabyte drives in a RAID Z2, and that handles my jail own cloud. After all of this, I still have the transfer issues, even when transferring from my laptop or my desktop, and the only way to get files over to it was to use Roadkill's unstoppable copier. In total, I copied 5.4 terabytes of data to it and ran multiple checks on the transfers to be sure that uh, I was all copied over to it. I know I need more RAM, but I'm currently just trying to use it for, uh, for how it is now, and in about a month, I should have enough money to maybe double it up. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Mm. Thanks, Samuel. I wonder why it's hanging like that. I have seen this in the past, too, where, and it's specifically from a Windows machine, I was doing a backup of a lot of files, and it would start transferring, transferring slow, 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 and then pause for a really long time, and then go very slow after that. And it, and I, I tried TerraCopy at the time to just keep retrying. I, so this was similar to a problem I was having, and if I recall, it was like a bu- it was like an I.O. It, when I looked at the system, there was some I.O. hang-up. I can't remember if it was a bad drive or not enough RAM, but... Essentially, yeah, it seemed um, like I was writing to a cache, and then when it when it would start to write to the array, it never could catch up. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there's a couple things you can look at on the FreeNAS. If you do uh, zpool space iostat space one, uh, it will print out every one second how much is reading and writing to the array. Uh, and in general, for ZFS, what you should see is no writes for four or five seconds. Then all the data that it's in the cache being flushed out in one or two seconds and then back to zeros until you do more writes. Uh, or if you're really throttling it, you see hundreds of megabytes every second as it's writing as fast as it can. Um, it is a little weird that you have some quite an array of different sized hard drives, but you know, uh, in that case, you're just going to use four, five, seven drives at three terabytes each, right? Um, it's not clear whether you have two separate RAID Z2s, uh, separate pools, or all in one, but again, the worst case you're really going to get is the performance of uh, the lowest drive in those arrays, and there should still be plenty. So Yeah, yeah also, um, remember, he has, he has two separate SATA controllers, too, for this thing. Like, yeah. Has two separate PCIe 2 SATA controllers. Plus, I guess he's using some of the onboard SATA ports because he has uh, listed here... 13 drives and only eight ports of SATA controller. Huh. Uh, huh. So, but uh, all of that should work fine. 
Uh, so the other one is if you run gstat, it will show for each drive the number of IOPS of reads and writes and the number of milliseconds it takes on average for each one. Oh, good. And if you see one drive that's saying it's taking like a thousand milliseconds per write, that drive is probably hosed. Uh, well, good way to test if you do zpool, the pool name, or sorry, zpool offline, the pool name, and then the drive that you think is faulty, it will offline that one drive, which uh, because you're RAID Z2, you can do that up to two drives without losing any data. Um, and then if your performance all of a sudden gets fixed, you know that drive is obviously bogus. If it doesn't, zpool online, pool name, that drive, turn it back on. Hmm. That's uh, and probably that a, way, yeah. Look at latency. Twenty uh, gigs of RAM now. Well, no, that was before. That was the first one. We went from so we 20, twenty to eight, to eight and yeah. both times had the same problem, which is weird. Uh, yeah, but it looks like he, and it does that smell like a bad drive? Like he has all this, like RAM. Well, it's hard to say because he has. Uh, well, it definitely doesn't smell like RAM. Like the the oh, the downside, if you have too little RAM, then ZFS will alternate between reading and writing more frequently. Uh-huh. So what ZFS normally does is does all reads and and writes buffer up. And then once the, the amount of RAM it has set up for that gets to like 60% full, mm-hmm. it starts writing to disk. The idea is that ideally you would do reading and then every five seconds you would stop reading, do all your writes as fast as you can, and then go back to reading. Right. And this gives much better performance. Uh, if you have too little RAM, you're going to switch, you're going to have to switch back to doing writes a lot more often in order to get, uh, to free up the RAM to be able to take more writes later. Uh, and so that reduces your write speed and it reduces your read speed. So maybe if you but combine that with enough, a, but you combine that with maybe a drive that's misbehaving. So it's it, eight gigs of RAM is probably enough. Although he has quite a bit of storage here, but it's, it's enough. Um, his problem is most likely a, a failing drive. Uh, but it only looks like there's maybe mm. one or two drives that are actually in common with his old setup, like that one Western Digital three terabyte drive. Mm-hmm. He's gonna be really mad if his one drive, the one drive he kept from the old one, is the one that's too. causing all the problems. I was thinking that too. Uh, but yeah, the biggest thing to look at there would be that. Other thing to try, um, if you do, uh, I'll put it in the show notes because it's kind of a long command. Uh, but if you do uh, dd from uh, dev zero, all right. So you need to make a ZFS dataset that doesn't have compression on, otherwise this will cheat. ZFS will cheat and win this benchmark, and it shouldn't. <laughs> Uh, but if you basically dd from zero to uh, a file called uh, zero file, uh, and this will basically make a 10 gigabyte file and see how long it takes. Uh, as it's running, you can press control T uh, to see what the progress is. And, uh, you know, if it's not hundreds of megabytes a second, then the problem is on the free NAS. Uh, but if on if from the shell on the free NAS, you can write to the disk really fast, you know, you can write 10 gigabytes of data really quickly, no problems, then it suggests the problem isn't necessarily with the drive or something in the free NAS. Maybe it's the Samba configuration or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you never know. It could be something like uh, SMB signing and there's some sort of disagreement that happens between yeah. the server and the client. It could uh, be... Uh, I use... Um, so on my computer here that I'm doing the show from right now, uh, is Windows 7... It only has a 200, uh, a mirrored set of 240 gigs uh, Intel SSDs for the operating system. Uh-huh. And almost everything runs off Samba shares from my file server, my ZFS file server in the basement. Mm-hmm. Like all of my Steam, my entire Steam game thing is all runs off that share. 
games actually load pretty well. You know, a gigabit network is 100-ish megabytes a second. That's yeah. the same speed you would get off a regular spinning, spinning hard drive. Spinning disk, yep. Uh, and because it's actually six disks, it can usually, you know, the better random I.O. performance can actually be better. And because it's cached on the RAM in my file server if I'm playing the game, right? Um, but, like, I run, every, like, my Firefox profile runs off of it. So if it was slow, it would kill me. Uh, and, you know, I copy when at the end of recording BSD now, I copy yeah. all those files off the SSD on the yeah. local machine to the file server for Rick to pick up and edit. And yeah, I, I get, I saturate the gigabit sending files, uh, from my windows machine to my, yep. my free BSD file server. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so hopefully Samuel, you'll, you'll get it worked out. And if you have any further yeah. questions, just let us know. It sounds like. It sounds yeah. like a very frustrating problem because when you don't know all the tools to check, it's very frustrating. Especially after you went and got all different hardware, and then it's yeah. like, why am I still having the same problem? But it is gonna you're gonna you're gonna learn something. You are yep. gonna. Definitely. Um, there's some stuff in the ZFS book about uh, the second one, Advanced ZFS, uh, about debugging that. Mm, so okay. definitely check out zfsbook.com and uh, check out the Advanced ZFS book, and it has some more uh, tips on there, including some D-trace scripts that actually tell you exactly how long it took to flush the right buffer each time and how big it was. Hmm. And uh, there's tips in there about sizing it differently and uh, tuning it. Like uh, There's one case where I was actually replicating a data set from a pool back to the same pool because that's what a customer wanted, even though it's like, well, I can do a clone and it'll not, it won't require this. No, it has to be completely separate. Anyway, so I did copy 10 terabytes of data from the pool to the same pool. Uh, and it's like, well, because by default, the maximum size of the write buffer was like four gigabytes. Uh -huh. uh, well, my array was really fast. So it would fill that up really quickly. And then pause reading right at four gigabytes which take less than a second okay and then read and i was like switching back and forth really quickly and not giving great performance well by telling it hey store up to 24 gigabytes and only when that's full right out to the disk right meant that it only wrote out now like once every 10 or 15 seconds and got about 25 percent better performance hmm that's pretty now, slick down now, normally in with production load, you don't want to have up to 15 seconds of data not actually written to disk in case the power goes out or something, right? Or the machine crashes. Yeah. So normally you wouldn't want to do that, but you can adjust it to get what you need and, and what you're willing to accept in the case of a problem. You know, in this case, it was copying data that was already on the drive to the drive. So if if the power went out and I lost 20 gigabytes of data, it was not going to matter at all. Well, you know, I wanted to just take a moment and say thank you to not just Samuel, but everybody who wrote in this week. Because yep. uh, we had a couple of, like, low weeks of email, and I was like, well, I'm not sure if we'll have enough emails for our double snap. So we put out the call last week, and um, wow, uh, we got a lot of emails. We got, we got, I still got, like, probably eight unread emails in my inbox. Uh, but we have enough email for this week and for next week's show, and it really means a lot to us because uh, we really like answering these questions. It's interesting discussion. It's new ground that we get to cover in the show. It's sometimes retreading stuff that we have new opinions on uh, and new takes on, so it's a good follow-up if you've been listening for a while. So we really thank everybody who emailed in. If you don't hear your question answered this week, be sure to tune in next week because we're going to read a whole other batch that came in and tune in the week after that. And you can keep sending your emails in because we eventually do get to Inbox Zero. So go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown or emails directly TechSnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. But with the feedback all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup. Roundup. 
Welcome to the Tech Snap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our intelligence network over at techsnap.reddit.com. Uh, like, I think maybe this first one did. Lenovo is in it again. Oh, you smell that? Yeah, Lenovo stepped in it. They're urging customers to uninstall dangerous applications that came pre-installed on their computers. <sighs> yeah. We'll actually have a much bigger feature on related to this story in next week's episode. Oh, okay. Well, I won't say much. I'll just say that, pretty much. You know, the bloatware that comes with some of these PCs, even when the operating system is shipping fully patched, the bloatware is having some serious flaws. So, yep. ooh, there you go. A little bit of a tease. And uh, thank you to the subreddit for submitting that. That was one mm-hmm. of the... Uh, voted stories up. Okay, 93% of phishing emails now are ransomware, at least according to a recent yep. study. Yeah, so well, That's the study is by a company that deals with phishing emails, but they said, <laughs> yeah, of the ones they uh, intercepted during March, 93% yeah. of them contained mal- uh, ransomware. Well, it turns out, you know, for phishing emails, the other, you know, usually the point is to give you a virus or take over your computer. And if you're going to do that, ransomware makes the most sense. You know, there's a couple other ways, I suppose, but. So it's not like 93% of all spam, but of all the phishing emails that were trying to trick you into doing something, yeah. most of them did ransomware because that's the mo- best way to get money out of them. Wow. Right now. So uh, this is amazing how fast it's climbed, too. It was up from 56% in December and less than 10%. Well, ransomware's, you yeah. know, kind of made a big splash. All and there's a lot of little things that have come together to make it possible. This story just won't die. Team viewer is denying a hack, but... Slews of machines have been remotely compromised, even machines with dual-factor authentication for TeamViewer. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, um, the Reddit thread that I have linked is, as part of that story uh, mm-hmm. has a bunch of people claiming that they had, you know, long, unguessable passwords that they didn't reuse anywhere. Whereas TeamViewer is saying, well, there's some uh, clients that got hacked, but th- we were definitely not compromised. They were just password reuse and stuff. And it's like some people saying, well, I have two-factor auth and a password I don't use anywhere else. So it definitely wasn't that. Yeah, I think uh, it was like some Doug, a Twitch streamer. Uh, he had his machine remotely compromised on his birthday, uh, and they logged into his PayPal account because it was saved in Chrome, and because they just got access to his desktop and spent three thousand dollars on gift cards yeah. via PayPal. Uh, I, w- I would suggest you know not saving your password uh, such that yeah. anybody that sits down on your computer can yeah. do that. I would also suggest uh, not keeping three K in PayPal. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it, it doesn't necessarily have the money in there. They could spend it from his credit card, right? Oh, true. So, yeah, if you have it linked or checking yep. even. Yeah. Yeah. You drain um, everything. Now, um, there's the also, did you hear about the uh, DNS thing that TeamViewer has going on right now, which is no. kind of weird? Yeah. So TeamViewer's DNS was screwed up during some of this time, uh, stopping people really from getting through. really them being compromised. And now uh, some people said they were getting redirected to Chinese servers. Now, TeamViewer's come out and said, no. That's not true, but our DNS server, our DNS got DDoSed. We were DDoSed, but we never were redirecting anybody to China. But how can they really say that if they were taken offline and somebody else was answering during that time? Well, it wouldn't have been someone else answering necessarily. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is. I don't understand. Uh, but yeah, uh, you might want to turn TeamViewer off for a couple of days until this starts itself out. But they've reiterated there's no security breach at TeamViewer. They say that it was they, a DDoS they, that took down our DNS. and Sure, but... Do they, you know? I know. How can like you they truly might not have say that? Checked hard enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. You know, don't save your password for PayPal in your browser. Such that anybody that's to say your computer can do that. Uh, and you know, if you're using something like LastPass or whatever, for mine, uh, for PayPal, it reprompts for my LastPass password before it will enter my PayPal password from LastPass. Huh. Uh, you know, I don't do that for every site, but for financial stuff, you have to re-enter my LastPass pa- master password in order to get access to the password. Good to thinking, Alan. The PayPal. 
Good thinking. Well, our PayPal has access to a lot of things. Yeah, that's a nice precaution. So tell me about this one. All your disk images are belong to us, says an appeals court. This sounds like a bad precedent. Yeah, so apparently the government uh, got access to this guy's... uh, So the guy got in trouble, and the government took a copy of his hard drive and all of his files, uh, and eventually that case was over. And later on... They were able to use those that same copy of his files against him in a different case. Oh. Whereas he says, he was appealing that, saying that the government should have had to destroy all the files not related to the first case once that case was over. They had no probable cause to keep the rest of my files. They're keeping it around, which implies they have a sophisticated system to recall that kind of stuff, too. Well, or they just, you know, usually they have rules where they can't destroy evidence, right? They have to keep it in case there's an appeal or whatever. Um in this case, it sounds like they actually did have to get a second search warrant to search the files for the second case. And in that case, you know, you can see how I guess that's allowed. But yeah, so if the government images your hard drive, they can keep it forever and use it against you in the future as well <laughs> for unrelated cases. True crypt uh, in or particular, something. Use uh, that. In particular, this may have impact if you're encrypting your drive. Okay. If, say, five years from now, the government suddenly has a way to break that encryption. Yes, which we so know they it, have held on to things and then retroactively gotten access right. to them. You know, so if you, know, if you had a 1024-bit uh, RSA key on your GPG back in the day, now that's not quite so good. In a couple of years, they might be able to just read everything that was encrypted that way. So that's why you got to keep ahead of this because, you know, it's not just that I need nobody to be able to get these files right now, but if they did get them, they need to not be able to open it for at least so many years, right? Yep. Of course, it's impossible to predict uh, what the advances will be over the next couple of years. Now, so that's kind of a bummer, but here's uh, a good side of the government. NSA, NSA, NASA just released 56 patented technologies into the public domain, including that super cool aerogel stuff, which... uh, I'm looking forward to that. Also, a means of weakening the shock wave strength in the leading edge of vehicles traveling at supersonic speeds. That seems like a big deal for the military. A well, down- just that, if we were going to ever have supersonic airliners again. Right, sure. A downlink data multiplexer? <laughs> yep. Get more bandwidth out of space. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, a few other things like... Uh, a uh, mono uh, repellent, which is a rocket engine with fewer moving parts, and uh, uh, and that sounds and less potential points of weakness, which sounds pretty awesome. Also, a dusty plasma thruster. <laughs> also, a, a method of converting nitrogen oxide waste into fertilizer. Holy smokes, that's a that's great. This is there, and that's just some of them. That's just that's just the highlights, really. There's even more in the uh, link if you guys want to read out. So, good guy NASA. That's good to see. Uh, all right, now we go over to Threat Post, back to some usual shenanigans with hackers, ex- yep. uh, bugs, and even some extortion. <laughs> yes. So this is one where uh, hackers are finding bugs in corporate software security systems uh, and then trying to ransom the data off uh, back to the company and then calling it a public service. It's like, so, you know, we found this bug, and uh, we're not saying that if you don't pay us, we'll give away your data, <laughs> but it'd be really nice if you paid us. Yeah, you might want to do that. <laughs> hmm. According to IBM's X-Force researchers, that is. Uh, all right, now I like this one. A cluster of mega breaches compromises a whopping 642 million passwords. MySpace, Tumblr, and Fling are on the list, joining LinkedIn. So less than two weeks after 177 million LinkedIn user passwords surfaced, researchers now discovered three more breaches, including those sites I just mentioned, bringing the total up to 642 million. All four of the password dumps are being sold on dark web forms by piece of 
I'm sorry, peace, underscore, of, underscore, mind, a user with 24 positive feedback ratings. Boy, talk about that, huh? Uh, Two neutral ratings and zero negative ratings. That's an indication that the unknown person isn't exaggerating the quality of the data. Look at that. Look how that's even being cited now. This is what suggests uh, team viewers' claim might be true, is you get this giant dump of passwords that isn't widely distributed yet, and you try all of them against team viewers. Although, um, you, know, you, you know, you try to log in to other sites with that giant list of, of known bad passwords. Yeah, some people, though, did in those threads specifically say, I only use this password right. with TeamViewer. Right, and so maybe that's not the case. MySpace. Uh, Oof. Yeah, I, somehow I don't see that big of a cross-section between those. <laughs> yeah. Especially, like, hopefully nobody's still using the same password they used when they signed up for MySpace. Uh, but in general, you know, that... Uh, that's the. This is the type of thing where you see a lot of these password reuse hacks. Is all of a sudden all these passwords come out w- combined with an email address, and you immediately go and try all of those on other popular sites and get what you can get. To me, too, part of the story here that's worth noting, especially since we just talked about this earlier in our show, is even ours is now using those dark web fi- uh, markets. And the ratings and reviews as something noteworthy to comment about the the attack. Whether this is just some guy claiming he's got all this, or if yeah. somebody's selling so, it and they have enough feedback that it's not only giving this attacker credibility in the dark web community and marketplace, but also and so uh, thus amongst his peers, but also now in the media. And there go the reader, which shows you, I think, how these. Ratings in these marketplaces are going to be playing a very significant role going forward for people to know if you're credible or not. And I Interesting think. Interesting note. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I just think that's it. I okay. think that's just a noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the chat room, WWNSX reports that, oh, I deleted my MySpace years ago. Doesn't mean that MySpace actually deleted your data off their server, though. Uh, and so it's entirely possible that your old password was still compromised because MySpace just deactivated your account rather than actually deleting it. And so, you know, when you ask a company to delete your profile, it doesn't actually guarantee they destroyed any of your data. I wonder if one of those, uh, I can't remember the names right now, but you know there's those websites you can go to and you can put your username in and find out if it was, or your password in and find out if it was in the compromised list. And there's some legitimate ones out there that you can actually trust. I don't remember the names of them, but you might keep your eye out to see if some of those get updated with Most these. of the time, you would only want to give out your email address, yes. not the password. Well, uh, Also, the other is most of them, because the passwords are usually at least somewhat hashed, uh, they can't easily tell if your password was What I would do, just for safe measure is put your date of birth, credit card, and social in there too, just to make yeah. sure you're covered. So you can search the whole database. In fact, if you just want to email that to me, no, don't do that. Uh, okay, this next headline honestly looks like it should be from a blog, but it's from, well, it is a Microsoft TechNet blog, I guess. Link to ransom. <laughs> yeah, so this is a heads up about a self-propagating man, uh, ransomware. Mm. So this is quite an advancement here. Uh, that means... Basically, it's a malware that when it infects your computer, it automatically starts spreading to other computers. Uh, so, you know, if, if you, say, are on a company network, it'll start putting copies of itself on shares so that other people will click on it and then get infected and spread. Mm. Apparently, this one is quite well done and kind of high-end. A ransom. link to ransom. So it's called uh, Win32 Cryptor. Is that what they called it right there? I'm trying to look at that. They called yeah. it Ransom Win32 oh, Zcryptor. 
Yes, Zcryptor. Ooh, ooh, watch out for Zcryptor. There's uh, more over there on the Microsoft TechNet blog if you want to read about it. So uh, Image Magic's not done, having some fun, and uh, Graphics Magic's having some fun too. Yeah. So in the previous one, we talked about how you know in SVG you could put a certain string in and it would cause it to run this other program and you could inject a command line. Well, it turns out you don't even have to do that. If you put the URLs pipe a command, no. it will just run it. No. 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 Okay, go patch your ass, everybody. You have been warned here on the TechSnap program. Okay, so the impossible task of creating the best VPNs list today. Our writer set out to make a list of reliable VPNs, and it turns out this task is complicated. Yep. Uh, So instead, after months of working on it, they gave up and instead just listed the criteria you should use uh, because trying to actually pick any of them or endorse them is just impossible. I, I could uh, imagine. Most of the other lists you find will be full of affiliate links, and so they're just suggesting this company because they'll get paid for it. And most times, you know, no matter how much the VPN claims that it won't log everything, you can't ever actually be sure. I, I like that they're busting maybe some misunderstandings about VPNs. And the other one is, yeah, if you, if you think a VPN you're paying for is going to provide anonymity, it's like, well, you're, paying you're actually for creating it. this direct link between your credit card and... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Great. This is neat. You know, I've been thinking more and more about this as uh, as I think about maybe setting up a VPN on my phone because I use Wi-Fi all over the place on my yes, phone. Yes, and that was the other one I mentioned is one thing you might want to consider is if you're using the free Wi-Fi at Starbucks, you don't want to be hijacked by mm-hmm. Bob the mm-hmm. Starbucks guy. So our last roundup story this week brings us to a new era. I mean, think about what this article is about to talk about and and just sit back and imagine the task that Google is taking on. Google is teaching its driverless cars how to be bigger assholes on the road, according to Gizmodo. Um, in fact, they've been looking at different honk algorithms. And uh, the efforts laid out on Google's May self-driving car report, which described the honk as the self-driving car's voice, but instead of human method of honking, reflexive, irrational, aggressive, Google assures us that driverless cars will be unfailingly well-behaved. Our self-driving cars aim to be polite, considerate, and only honk when it makes driving safer for everyone. To help train the fleet, wrap your heads around this. To help train the fleet, the horn was initially only allowed to honk inside the car so as not to disturb other drivers. The test drivers noted whether each beep was appropriate when when uh, when then, after that, Google's engineers tinkered with the software, and adjusted the honk algorithm. They think they have it down now. Gizmodo says it's a horrifying concept that there's even a honk algorithm to begin with. If another vehicle, for example, is slowly reversing towards us, we might sound too short, quieter bip-bips as a friendly heads-up to let the driver know we're behind them. However, if there's a situation that requires more urgency, we'll use one loud, sustained honk. (laughs) They got it figured out, Alan. (laughs) Can't wait for our brave new future, powered by Google Cars. The rest of the articles in there, it's pretty good. Um, you know, uh, I never yeah, thought so about a honk algorithm. these two other stories related to this. One is uh, Google self-driving car and guy on bicycle arrive at uh, a, an intersection, right? Uh, and the guy on the bike is kind of like standing on his pedals and kind of rocking back and forth a little bit. So when the light turns green, the Google car goes to go, but then sees the guy on the bike kind of move forward a tiny bit. And it immediately stops thinking that the bike is about to take off and it doesn't want to run into the bike. But then the guy on the bike tilts backwards a little bit and the car goes to take off again. But then when he moves forward and the car stops. 
And he goes, and eventually the bike figures out what's going on and he's just fucking with the car, right? Yeah. Uh, but you see that at some point the car has to give up trying to not kill the bicyclist and just go. Yeah. Right. And there was a similar uh, pro- uh, story about um, robots that deliver medication to patients in a hospital. Uh huh. And they'll stop to let people pass in the hallway. But eventually the robot would make no progress because people would just keep getting in the way it and people yeah. so eventually the robot has to get pissed off and just be like beep and then barge into people <laughs> wow uh the other thing i love about this uh, article over at gizmodo is there's a picture of eric schmidt riding the car and he looks totally scared shitless like he looks like he's completely freaking out which is which is great because it's his company's own product which is always extremely uh that just as a consumer makes me feel super good that he's that freaked out yes. he look, and, he's uh, like doing one of these oh my god <laughs> And the thing but, looks like it's doing two miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. Somebody in the chat room explains exactly why uh, these cars are going to have to become bigger assholes. Because he's like, man, I so look forward to trolling driverless cars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And eventually, yeah. <laughs> you know people on the road are going to mess with it, too. Yeah. Um, well, and there you go. Eventually, you know, to, in order to make progress, it needs to eventually get upset. And yep. Remember, in our near future, we'll all be considering the honk algorithm that our car comes with as perhaps a purchasing feature. Will you want a more aggressive honk algorithm? Will it report how many times it had to honk? Will that metric be collected and analyzed in aggregate? Who knows? But the TechSnap program will keep an eye on it, especially when there's security vulnerabilities in their implementation. Don't forget, yes. we still and love I'd your questions. making your car honk on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best part of that story. Honk on the inside. That well, is, it's, there's a test driver, right? Yeah, Even of though course. the car's self-driving, right. there's a controller, and yeah. And, and then they have than, to note that was a that was a proper honk. Yes, that was a yes. proper honk. It was, it was a good idea to honk then. It's just like, <laughs> why are you honking? <laughs> that could that must be at times a super boring job when you're just in a car clocking miles to, to try different scenarios. But you have to pay close attention to what the car's doing and make yes. sure it's doing the right thing. Right. So you can't check out. You can't be like flipping through the phone. Uh, wow, that's an interesting time that we are approaching. And uh, I hope there's other people out there working on the same problem because uh, I'd like a lot of other people troubleshooting this thing. All right. Speaking of troubleshooting, we'll happy to do it for you. TechSnap at JupiterBroadcasting.com or use the contact form. Don't forget you can submit content like Roundup links and news items at TechSnap.Reddit.com. And check the calendar for our live times. We will not be live next week, but we will have a recorded episode for you. You can find that at JupiterBroadcasting.com slash calendar. And when we are live, which is pretty much every single week at Thursday, you go to JBLive.TV. Okay, everybody. Thanks so much much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.